Hey y'all, this is your girl Amber, Reaching Your Potential. In this episode today, I have a fellow OT and also fellow Latina on the episode today. Very excited to talk to her and just her just telling us a little bit about what she is very passionate about is really advocacy. Advocacy for the profession, but specifically for, for underrepresented on people in our country and in our world. And that's something that we need to take more light and just like highlight a little bit more. And this is a perfect episode where we get the chance to do that. So let's get started. guys so on this episode today i have angela fuentes on the podcast she's going to introduce herself tell us a little bit about her passion and how she got to ot and all that fun stuff so everyone meet angela hi thank you so much amber um that was a really fun introduction um yeah so let's see i have been in ot for this will be going into my fifth year um, it honestly feels way longer than that since I think the pandemic probably aged me like 10 years <laughs> working through that. But um, yeah, so I um, would say I like got introduced to OT through my mom. She was a healthcare worker. She was a nurse. Um, I remember she used to work with nurses in home care and would just say like, oh, I can really see you doing this. Like they're really fun and creative. And um, I think like parents like always want their kids to follow in their footsteps. But I think she also wanted me to like kind of like reach like another level that she couldn't really get herself. She was like really overworked in her job and had a really high stress environment. And I think she saw OT as like an avenue for, you know, me to kind of get like another level of um, kind of like quality comfort in my, in my work. Um, and that did appeal to me because I, I saw the way she worked and I was kind of put off by a lot of like healthcare culture and stuff. But um yeah, I, I knew that the caveat was going to be I'd have to get more education, and um, I was a first-gen college graduate in my family, in my immediate family, um, so that was kind of like a big obstacle. I honestly sometimes ask myself, like, how did I get through OT school? Like, I literally can't even fathom it sometimes. It was a really difficult journey, but um, I was really lucky to have some great professors who supported my interests and my passions. Um and like to this day, I kind of still have moments where I, you know, have that imposter syndrome, but um, I really have reframed the way that I think about it. And I've learned that, you know, especially as um, a Hispanic OT, I, you know, I think we're kind of put into this profession that's not always welcoming to us. And we have to sort of learn to not blame ourselves and kind of blame more of the education and the system that we work in. Um, and once I kind of realized that I've taken um, a lot of that imposter syndrome off my plate. <laughs> and um, It's still kind of always there though. But um, I guess my long story short is that even through, you know, I did a lot of volunteering before going into OT school. Um, I did a lot of, you know, just kind of like um, non-traditional fieldwork placements. And um, even still like in my actual practice, I sometimes question, you know, if this is the profession for me. Um, and I know that kind of sounds bad to maybe some listeners, but I honestly think that it's actually a very healthy mindset. It helps me to just kind of practice like not too much attachment to my role as like my identity. Um, and I think that's especially important, you know, 
from working through the pandemic and in this post COVID world where we just see so much burnout in healthcare. I think I've learned to um, just like not, uh, yeah, like get stuck in a work environment that's not conducive to my lifestyle and, um, and my health and my mental well-being. And um, so that's kind of why I say I kind of always question the culture of OT. Um, and I don't mean to do that in a way that's negative or critical, but um, it is definitely something that helps me to push past a lot of barriers that I've felt in my workplaces. Um, and the current work that I do as an OT, um, well, I'm actually between jobs at the moment. I've been taking kind of um, almost like a leave of absence, although I'm not getting paid for it. <laughs> um, and I left my job in school-based practice, which was largely teletherapy. Um, it was a really amazing practice and I really loved it a lot. Um, I worked almost predominantly with a lot of um, newcomer children, so a lot of refugees and immigrants um, who are mostly from uh, countries in Africa, like Somalia or the Congo. Um, and I learned so much and I was able to apply a lot of like my um, like OT school research and like some of those non-traditional experiences I had. Um, and it really taught me that there's so much opportunity for OTs to work in diversity and to work in um, also resettlement in a lot of different ways in the, in the U.S. Um, and despite that, I've kind of just realized like, okay, I think my time there was done. I, I spent two years doing that. And before that, I was working in a bunch of different settings like home care and skilled nursing. Um, and a lot of those practices too, the common thread was working with a lot of underserved clients, um, you know, historically marginalized persons. And so currently I'm just taking some time off and I'm getting ready to move abroad. I'll be taking a job in Australia pretty soon. Um, I've never been there before. I've never uh, like even traveled abroad at all. But um, I just kind of realized like this is a great way to experience um, a different type of practice. And um, it's actually a really easy pathway too as an OT to kind of like get a work visa. Um, so I've kind of just realized like, oh, this is a great way for me to kind of fully exercise the privilege of being a healthcare professional um, in a way that, you know, can benefit my life too. And plus they have a universal healthcare system and I'm really excited to experience how that could play a, a role in um, serving my clients. Also too, they do a lot of work in resettlement, a lot of research in resettlement. Um, so I'm excited to kind of get exposed to some of these that have been maybe doing this work longer than, you know, has existed here in the U.S. So I like to be really upfront about the fact that I'm taking time off just because I feel like for me, it's helps me to just recognize my burnout and to, again, practice that non-attachment to my role as an OT. Um, I used to, when I'd be in between jobs, I'd feel a lot of guilt and angst about not working or not working enough. Um, but I really am proud of myself for kind of letting go of some of that, like, um, self-imposed like guilt and shame and stuff. Um, so yeah, I love to talk to students about that and um, just really be um, upfront about that uh, reality for myself. But um, yeah, that was a really long one. Yeah, <laughs> no, it really answered a, a lot. Honestly, I want to just talk a little bit about even the part of you taking a break and knowing that you needed that break. And I commend you as well, because I did that um, when did I do that? I did that in April of this year. I took a whole month off from working OT-based services and it was well needed. Like I did a lot of traveling. I focused more on, you know, my other projects that I had going on at the time. And it was such a great experience because I didn't realize how much 
pressure I put on myself when I was working full-time as an OT. So you even speaking upon it and saying like, I'm so relieved that I did it. Like I'm proud of myself. You should be proud. And even anyone that is listening here that is feeling any sense of uneasiness, intense of just feeling burnt out. And they just know that like, Hey, I need to take a break. We're not saying to take a whole month. We're not saying to take a day or a week. Like, you know how much time you need to take in order to gather yourself, know when is the right time to go back to work and you would you will enter or return back with the full cup versus giving from an empty one. <laughs> and that's kind of <laughs> like how I felt at that time too. So I do appreciate you um, speaking a, a lot on that. And then even to speak on what you are passionate about, I think, to be honest, I haven't heard any OT that really dives deep into serving people that are underserved, but specifically for those who are in the process of resettling. Um, I don't, I really don't hear that at all. And just hearing you be so passionate about it and taking the risk to travel and to live in a whole new country to be dwelling and living in like a space that is about universal health care and then being around other health care professionals that will have the same passions as you and you can really be like in it to really serve these people that who need it most so I am so excited for you I definitely have to keep in contact with you to see how it goes because I know you're going to do amazing things out there yeah yeah thank you so much Amber yeah and it's cool to hear your experience too with kind of just non-work I um yeah I love sharing stories like that and just to kind of like destigmatize it because <laughs> um, like you said, I felt, I felt the same way. I don't feel like this is ever time lost. I feel like it's, I usually come back, like you said, with a full cup and feeling um, like I actually gained more insight about myself or my clients. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, I really cannot advertise it enough. Um, yeah. And I couldn't be um, moving abroad had I not had this time to myself. So yeah, it's really essential. Um, I know it's going to put me in a good position to start this whole new journey. Yeah, I agree. So let's go a little bit into what you do in terms of using your platform, like your social media page, if you guys, well, she's going to tell you guys her social media page at the end, but (laughs) once you guys find out about her social media platform, she'll explain what it's about, but it's specifically, whenever I look at it, I love seeing all of your content, but I feel like it really focuses a lot on the need to advocate for justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, because there is such a lack of it, especially in our profession. Uh, For those who don't know, I feel like you guys should know based on the whole podcast in its entirety, uh, occupational therapy is a predominantly white and predominantly female profession. So whenever you look at anyone that is not representing as white, it's a very small percentage. So I always talk about how um, in terms of Black OTs, it's about 5% of Black OTs. And then whatever makes up the rest of it is also still pretty small compared to probably like 90 or like over 90% of the profession are white individuals. So I want to know what really made you focus all in towards this very underrated topic. I mean, like for me, it's very important. I mean, I love talking about diversity and inclusion. I talked about it in research and 
in grad school and even in OT school because I saw the need. Um, I was the only Black person in my cohort. So I, I was always advocating for racial diversity and just like inclusion and equity and, and everything in between. But I want to kind of hear your story in terms of even how was your, your um, OT school experience? I know you said you were supported by your professors, but did that look the same with your peers? And what really drove you into creating what you have now in terms of like your Instagram page? Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I can say that I think really my entire college experience, even undergrad, I just was always like seeking out more information about diversity and especially like culture and healthcare and the way that culture can determine the type of healthcare outcomes that you receive. Um, I feel like I, from my childhood, I, I really experienced a lot of um, kind of just, uh, I think they even got like vicarious trauma, just sort of seeing other people in my family who spoke less English than me and who, you know, looked more, um, you know, black or brown than I did. Um, and the way that their healthcare was um, very, very much influenced by their identity and those intersection, intersectional identities. Um, and it kind of just always like really bummed me out. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a hard thing to witness. And um, I feel like I just never got the answers as to why that is. And I kind of, I could definitely remember, especially in OT school, just craving any information that was on these topics. Um, you know, when I learned about occupational justice, I remember just like sitting up a little bit straighter in class and being like, oh, wow, like this really makes a lot of sense. And I really love that I'm learning this right now. Um, and I still kind of felt like I wasn't getting enough of that information. I wanted to spend week more weeks on that stuff, you know. And I think to have had my lived experience um, and to still be craving that information. I, I think I looked around the room and saw, you know, other people who don't have these experiences of lived diversity um, and marginalization. Uh, and I think just realizing, you know, gosh, they must really be craving more of this. You know, they, this must be very um, unknown to them. And uh, so I kind of just knew that, yeah, if it was just me lacking it, then all of us were, were truly lacking it. Um, and then once I started working and experiencing my own burnout and seeing a lot of systemic issues, um, I remember a really big aha moment I had was when I was in the school system, I had to serve on this like compliance team where um, the whole entire school system was being audited by the state for having really poor education outcomes in this predominantly you know, refugee immigrant community. Um, a lot of the students were being overdetermined for having disabilities or underdetermined. Um, and so my role was to go through the documentation of previous OTs, and I was able to piece together how, you know, oh, they made a real critical issue here with their assessment, they didn't use an interpreter, or here they, um, you know, qualified the student without having enough evidence or enough holistic evidence. Um, and I kind of just realized, like, oh, wow, like, there's a lot of OTs making mistakes out here, and it's because they don't have this training, and it can really be so detrimental to communities, entire communities of people. Um, you know, it really causes a lot of harm. I agree with that because no one can really talk about what you've been through or what you have seen if you live through it. So it's different from, let's say like, I know like in OT school, we always have all these different cases. Our professors create these different case, um, case loads for us to have an idea of what things are like. But it's not the same when you truly live the experience. So I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, I have seen it in my own family in terms of healthcare and 
just people that look like me and based on how they get treated in nursing homes and hospitals saying that, you know, people that are my skin color may be able to tolerate pain more than the average person. It makes me so upset. Like every time when I hear something in terms of discrimination or some type of stigma towards people of color, people that look like me, this person can literally be my grandmother, my, my great grandmother, my aunt, my mother, my father, whoever, and they're not getting the appropriate treatment because of how the the healthcare system is. And I just love that you see that there's a need and it's important to really talk about that this is going to affect us, not just now, but like for the future years to come. So imagine, I, I honestly feel like nobody was really even thinking about this even before we found out about OT or before OT even existed. There are so many problems or challenges that we're facing now because these things were never um there is no solution to it they just like they probably thought that this was normal this it was normalized and honestly I'm so glad that there are people like you there's people like me that are okay to speak up and to advocate for these things because things need to be done. Like this, for example, the school issue with the state coming in, they didn't realize that the assessments were the way they were because there was no interpreter for the student because English is their second language. Um, you know, like there's, there's so many different underlying things that could really make or break the type of services that a child can get and what they can benefit from. Yeah, I couldn't agree more exactly. And I think what's so cool about like, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion and justice work NOT is that like, we might not have explicitly learned it um, in our programs, but you know, really all of the language and vocabulary really falls together. Um, Whenever I read research from DEI, you know, work, I'm just always like, wow, this is so OT, you know, this is exactly the work that we do because as occupational therapists, you know, I would say probably 90% of our, our time, we're working with clients with historically marginalized identities, whether it's older adults or um, people with disabilities. Um, you know, I mean, even if we're in an area of the country that's not super diverse, you know, we're still working with um, a random subset of any given population that's always gonna have some level of diversity to it. Um, so I, it's such a disservice when we don't include this education in our programs because we truly do need it. Um, And so that kind of is why I really fall so heavily back on um, the framework of occupational justice and, um, you know, just finding research in occupational justice. It's really the tool that I feel like I use to do the work that I do. Um, And what's great about it is it's such a versatile framework that you can you can and you really should be using it in every setting that you're working in. Because, again, I mean, no matter what client you're working with, whatever their identity or culture is, they need you to solve a novel you know, they need to, you to create a novel solution to a problem because, you know, traditional healthcare and the medical system has already not done enough for them. So they're coming to you for a new solution. Um, and so that's what that framework helps us do is it helps us create a new solution to, you know, an existing problem that's just been recurring. And um, that's what really excites me a lot about it. Um, I could talk about it for probably the entire hour, <laughs> just that topic alone. And I, and I like that framework as well, because that's what we do as OTs, right? Like we always look at 
all our clients differently. We don't give every client the same exact intervention or the same type of response to whatever is going on in their lives. We have to be very creative in terms of how we solve these different issues that each client will have. So thinking it in that perspective versus like, well, I did do this for X, Y, and Z. Oh, maybe it might work for this person, but it may not. Like that's why it's so important to use that occupational profile to really figure out what is really important for this person. What are their roles? What what is their social life like? What are their cultural routines? What are their habits? All these things are going to align what this person looks like. And how can we use those tools or those different factors into providing the best care um, service for them? So I, I'm so glad that you explained what occupational justice was and even like the framework in order for people to have an understanding of what it's like because to be honest I know there's some listeners that may not have an idea of like wait I didn't even know that was a framework I didn't even know this was a thing it's a thing (laughs) yes yes and to those listeners I really would strongly recommend to you you know if you don't feel like you're getting enough of that training and education if you're you know, if you've only used the framework of occupational justice and like one case study and one class, I really encourage you to approach your professors about that and to ask for more of it or, you know, to maybe just do and not ask permission, um, you know, just kind of lead with um, with that when you're answering questions or, um, you know, just infuse it into your own learning just because like, you know, as occupational therapy students, we're consumers of the education system and we should have a lot of input and the type of OT that we're learning. And some pr- programs I think do better um, at being relevant and um, you know really pro-justice and pro-diversity than others. But I think you should feel within reason to kind of request and, and even demand more of that training because um, it will just put you in, in such a great position. Yes, I agree. So I have a few more questions, like two more questions for you. The first one is, Since we have some listeners that may be very adamant and very passionate about diversity and inclusion and advocating, and then there may be some people that are very mind blown about this whole conversation, may have no idea what this is about until just now. And now they're like, hey, now I wanna be a part of this, this movement in terms of advocating. And this is not, I don't want this to be just a discussion about advocating for OT. I want this to be a discussion for advocating for whatever you feel like is like your community in terms of diversity, inclusion, equity, all these important words, right? Like we're just kind of like throwing them all out here at once. But even though this is an OT, quote unquote, OT podcast, we're thinking about everyone. We're thinking about all different communities who are affected by these same situations. But the question I do have for you is for those listeners that may have no idea how to advocate for these specific things, what are some ways that they could start to advocate for whatever community that really needs to focus on like justice, equity, inclusion, diversity? Yeah, ooh, I really, really love this question. This is such a beautiful question. Um, so I really think um, it's important to know, and what's cool is that the framework of occupational justice kind of tells us that um, 
you know, working towards justice and inclusion um, is a very like systemic process. So it exists on different tiers. Um, and it's really helpful to kind of break that down for yourself so that you can find a way to sort of make your most realistic impact and like your most kind of lasting impact. And I use the term a lot of sustainability, obviously not replying or um, having to do much with the environment, but just more about, you know, having an impact that's gonna um, not burn you out basically. Um, and so to do that, it's really cool to think about it in three different tiers, just to kind of make it simple for yourself. You can either work at a micro level, which would be individual, um, just what's within your immediate circle. Um, if you're an OT, that would be like, you know, really focusing on your um, provider to client interactions. And um, as opposed to sort of just going through the email sheet that you have at your workplace, you know, really think about being mindful in a way where you're um, collaborating with the client and you're working on goals together and your client knows what their goals are, no matter how jargony the terms are, um, you can break it down in a way that they can understand it. And if the client can't understand it, then maybe it's their caregiver that you would be doing this um, talking with. Um, also, just kind of using a coaching model as opposed to like a rehabilitative model can really have a big impact. Again, you're kind of sharing power with your client um, and you're doing with them instead of doing to them, which can become a, a pretty kind of harmful sort of um, abuse of, of power dynamics um, historically in healthcare. Um, using trauma-informed practices can go a long way too, um, to be just really innovative and inclusive to your clients. Um, so yeah, just kind of working on what's within your immediate circle. Also too, just thinking about, you know, um, who around you can support you in your advocacy work? Is it friends and family? Is it a therapist? Um, is it other people at your workplace who share the same values and, and ideas as you? Um, you know, really having a sense of who in your immediate circle can give you um, a strong playing field for, for becoming an advocate. And then from there and the meso level, so this is like you know, going a tier wider, which would be I like to think of it as mostly just your workplace. So, um, you know, what supports do you have in your immediate workplace? Or sometimes, unfortunately, what supports don't you have? Um, if you can identify those, like, oh gosh, I just don't have enough supplies. Or, you know, my assessment tools aren't normed for the language that my client speaks. I think I need to use a new assessment tool. Um, maybe the productivity standard is too high for you to be able to do work to the quality that you know you should. Um, I've been in some situations where I've not had access to um, like a professional interpreter. Um, I've had to sort of advocate and talk to my boss about, you know, how can we work towards this? This is a really important thing. Um, yeah, and then again, sort of if you're a student, this could be just, you know, your cohort. Um, so just your immediate student program. Uh, are there students who are interested in um, starting up a COTAD chapter? That's um, the Coalition of OT Advocates for Diversity. Uh, again, also working with some of your professors, like that example I mentioned about, you know, asking your professors to bring you more occupational justice content. Um, that would be a great example of sort of staying in your workplace to, to advocate. And then from there, you can also do community advocacy, which could look a million different ways. Um, and the sort of common thread with this is that it just affects like the largest amount of people possible. Um, like for example, if you work in like skilled nursing or maybe even like in the hospital setting and you have a lot of patients who keep having recurring falls and that's the huge big reason that's been setting them back. You know, maybe you need to do some in-services with the 
STNAs or the nursing management to make sure that everyone in the facility knows how to do their part to prevent falls. And if we can all kind of get on the same page with that. Um, or actually something I've been doing some advocacy on lately in the sort of um, local refugee community is um, just being able to identify health hazards in people's homes, like um, exposure to lead paint that can create such a huge array of health issues that can affect a child's education, their early development, their milestones. Um, and instead of treating the downstream, you know, oh, a developmental delay, let's do some exercises for that. We're just gonna jump right to the root of the issue, which is the lead paint hazard that's causing a lot of these um, delays. And that would be an uh, example of community advocacy. Um, yeah, I can give a million more examples, but yeah, breaking it down to just those three tiers can help you find an entry point. And you don't have to work at all three tiers all the time. You can start at any which one of them, whatever feels like it's gonna match your current energy level or the resources that you have at the moment. Um, so it's kind of a, a great sort of way to pick to pick your path. Oh, that was great. I love that. I love how you kind of gave that visual idea of there's so many different ways that we could work in terms of advocacy for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion from a very personal level all the way down to something as big as a whole community. So I hope you guys learn a thing or two from this episode. I know I learned a lot as well, but I'm so grateful, Angela, that you came on the podcast today to just share a huge, huge importance for such an amazing topic and amazing service that you do. And I know this is just the beginning of something amazing. So I thank you for everything that you're doing so far in our profession. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you very much for sharing your platform with me. I'm really always excited to talk about these things. Um, so thank you for giving me a voice here. Anytime, girl. Um, and at the end of the episode, I usually allow my guests to share their social media, anything in terms of projects or businesses that you may have. This is the time to share with the audience. Okay, great. Yeah, so you can follow me on responsive underscore OT on Instagram. Um, and then you can also um, either just check out my blog or become a subscriber for um, more early content at responsiveot.com. Um, that's kind of been my real big passion project lately is just to provide um, really digestible education for OTs in the field, students, um, OT professors to just sort of consume um, research in diversity, equity, inclusion and occupational justice. Um, I also just give some updates on the type of work I'm doing. Um, and yeah, I just really want it to be kind of a go-to resource page for people that want to know more about this work and, um, who can share it with others. Um, and I'm always open to like, op um, opportunities to speak. I've done a lot of COTAD, um, speaking. I am trying to work towards kind of monetizing it a little bit. I've learned to kind of preserve my, um, capacity to talk about this work, especially when it's personal, um, and I really encourage anyone else to do the same. Um, and I really hope that more of our COTAD chapters will be sort of inspired to allocate funds to, to their speakers who are sharing their diverse experiences. Um, so yeah, I am open to that, but it's gonna be a little tricky once I move abroad um, to be available on the US end, uh, but I'm definitely open to collaborating and coming up with some creative ways to, to share content with more students. But yeah, that's pretty much 
it, I think. All right, sounds good to me. So you guys have Angela's information. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything that was mentioned on this podcast, feel free to hit up Angela, hit up me. Any questions, we're here for the conversation. We're here for the discussion. Angela has so much information in terms of resources to start off your advocacy or you just want to learn more about it her blog is great her instagram is amazing very if she breaks down all of these like complicated research topics that some people may not want to read because they just don't understand the the jargon that's in it but angela does such a great job to make sure that people understand the main point on everything that she posts so Definitely take a chance to look at that whenever you get the chance to. But this is the episode with Angela. We were talking about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. We were talking about occupational justice and the framework. And that is how we really guide our services when we are working with populations that are underserved or underrepresented. And that's how we provide that type of advocacy and support for them so they can feel supported and have their lives change in such an amazing way. So that is really it, y'all. Check out the next episode in a little bit, but I will talk to you guys later. Peace out.